So selfishness is another way, altruism. These are often seen as opposites or like confronted, but really I think we have to use both tools. This idea of living in our purpose, it's fundamentally selfish and that it's in, it's individual and it's based in the needs of the individual. But the whole reason for doing it is to be in harmonious contribution to the group. Surprised by your own thoughts? Well, you're not alone. From the time we're born to the time we die, we spend our lives meeting strangers, including the one within. We also spend our lives learning about many of those strangers and turning them into colleagues, friends, and family. In this podcast, host Charlie Bressler talks with fascinating people on their musings about family, community, work, helping others, and getting to know the stranger inside ourselves. Where do we fit in the world we all inhabit together? Charlie Bressler, the co-founder of The Life You Can Save and former president of a large international retail company, investigates ideas that he has been musing on since he obtained his PhD in clinical and social psychology way back in 1984. Welcome again to Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Today, I'm happy to be musing with Ankur Shah Delight. Ankur has worked as a computer scientist, hospital chaplain, organic farmer, Dharma teacher, tour guide, restaurateur, executive coach, and mediator. His podcast, The 10,000 Heroes Show, investigates how humans can engage with conflict as an instrument of growth, both individually and collectively. Although he keeps it well hidden, Anker is a graduate of Stanford University and something of a computer tech whiz kid, but he is no longer a kid. Anker lives on the Olympic Peninsula and spends his free time with his six-year-old daughter, Jasmine, his wife, Miriam, hiking in the mountains, and providing a therapeutic presence for those of us lucky enough to be in his community. Welcome, Anker. great to have you on the podcast and to be here musing with you today. For the audience, I just want to say that Ankur and I are good friends. We met through my son and his community here in Squim, Washington, and I'm really glad that you decided to be on the podcast. And I must tell the audience also that I was on your podcast. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm excited to support the life you can save in any way I can and just love hanging out with you. Okay. I The same here. And hopefully uh, the people listening will enjoy what we have to talk about today. It's always enjoyable for me when we get together. The audience doesn't know you, and you have a really interesting history to me. And I think it'd be great if you could take a few moments for the audience and bring them up to speed on your own personal history and how you ended up here today, but mostly what you've done and what's contributed to you being Anchor. Okay. Big question. Uncle. Yeah. Is there a specific part of that journey that you're thinking of or you'd like me to focus on? Well, I think that one of the things that's really interesting is your Indian heritage. Another thing that I find really interesting is how you've gotten to the view of the world that you've got as you would describe it today. Because I do think that you see things very differently from many people. Um, although in, a many, in other ways, you're quite conventional. You're married. You have a child. Yeah. 
you're a technologist, you went to Stanford University. So there's a lot in your history that you could write it up and say, oh, this guy's just a typical tech nerd. But you're hardly a typical tech nerd. So I guess I would expect that you'll focus on the things that make you different than a typical Stanford graduate tech nerd. Yeah. Although you're a nerd, I have to Yeah, say. definitely a nerd. So I grew up in Squim, Washington, rural Washington state. I was the only, one of the only people of color. And so I didn't really relate to being Indian. You know, I think I was doing my best to see myself as white so I could fit in and survive. Tried to get as far away from here as I could and got to Stanford. That was just a real... I was so happy. I was so happy to get out of here, be in a place with like a lot of just like intellectual challenge. And while I went there to study math, computer science, I ended up taking a lot of philosophy classes. But at one point I did an independent study directed reading on the history and philosophy of anarchism. So I got into all these different anarchist philosophers. And one of them at the end of it was Gandhi. And that was really my first... So you think of Gandhi as an anarchist philosopher, because that's not at all how I think of him. I think of him as a Hindu nationalist and a politician. Yeah. So either it was, I don't know whose idea. It could have been mine or it could have been the professor's. But but if you get into his work, he's definitely like, yeah, definitely right along the lines of anarchist philosophy, but nonviolent, just different than Bakunin. Yeah, different than Bakunin. Some of the other famous ones. But the, the idea is that like even in his concept of Swaraj, which was the name of the Indian independence movement from British colonialism, the idea is that Raj means kingdom and Swa is the self. So it's it's the the independence to lead oneself. And he applied it on the national level, but also meant it on the personal and community level. That the more like so so for him, what's happened to India of becoming one of the world superpowers essentially is a total failure. I mean, for Gandhi, he wanted every village to have the same independence of kind of culture and production that he wanted for the country as a whole. And the same with every person. So it's really, the anarchist stuff didn't succeed, which is what we don't know about. Well, like Julius Nereri. I mean, I don't know if you know about village socialism, but it was very much that it would be an individual thing. Um, An African guy with probably similar background in history I don't even know whether Nereri and Gandhi knew each other. I don't either. I, my stepdad would tell me about Nereri, but I've never studied him uh-huh. like after that. So I don't, I don't okay. know that. Yeah. So that was, that was a key moment for me that kind of brought this, this desire to learn more about India in general and more of like practical philosophy in general. And then towards the end of Stanford, I became really disenchanted with the normal treadmill of Ivy League school to investment banking and wanted to get as far away from that as possible. And so I ended up spending the next 12 years just traveling around the world, mainly living with peasant farmers in different places in India, West Africa, South America, Mexico, just just basically all over. And that I see as my real, you could call it my real education. It's a little bit dismissive. It's like the complement. It was like everything I didn't learn at, at university. And that was really about people and about what it means to treat someone with love and respect, about humility, about all. I mean, I, I got into college and left college thinking I knew a lot of things, realized I did not know, like I wouldn't be able to survive for a week on my own. And I learned that really quickly. And I went through all these educational experiences to be able to, to survive for a week on my own or longer than that even. 
that was really transformative. Part of that time was going to India and spending almost five years there and just studying all the things that I didn't grow up with. So meditation, yoga, Indian classical music, uh, traditional food, agriculture, permaculture, Ayurvedic medicine, just like, and, the, and just the, the way people related, which is so different than how I grew up. And I got to see this incredible beauty of like getting onto a bus with like no, with one person on it. And, I, and like generally here, we would sit like as far as, way, as far as far away from that person as we could. And then the next person gets on and they sit right next to me in the bus. Cause they're like, oh, hey, somebody I can talk to. That's so strange. <laughs> and, um, but I, but I, but now it, it's like almost like a, a switch has been flipped in me. And now since that moment, I can do both, but I can see the value and like the targeted value in both and the, and the, the social cost. When people when people did just sit right next to you, even though there was an empty bus, although I don't think of empty buses in India uh, at all, I think of very crowded buses, but somebody sits down, what is in their mind sitting next to you? What are they trying to accomplish? Is it an instrumental behavior like they want to have a conversation or is it just a cultural thing that they picked up and they don't even think about it? Okay. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that distinction. So my answer well, would be... Well, instrumental behavior is a behavior where you're trying to accomplish something. Yeah. And a, and a cultural thing could be just a habitual behavior that you haven't really thought about and you don't really have a purpose for why you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think they wanted to talk. I mean... They wanted to talk. Oh, that was like, the reason to do it. Oh, it was always a conversation. It was always a conversation. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, okay. So that's interesting. And so you a lot of different experiences in India. When you left this 12-year period, if you could say there were three critical things you took away, and maybe this is a very Western question, but if there were, maybe this is more for Stanford University than your experiences in these 12 years, but were there a few, I said three, it could be five, it could be one or two, that you took away that you brought with you for the rest of your life in all the work and all the relationships you've had? The first thing that comes to mind is a kind of orientation towards my my work in the world as a human being, not not as like specific to me, but just that you're like I there's like three domains in which I want to be um, progressing. I want to be excellent and I want to be caring. And those three domains are my relationship with myself, my relationship with the other humans, the community of humanity, and my relationship with, for lack of a better word, the natural world or, or nature. It's other, other species, really plant, animal, whatever Gaia. So, and those are the three things that became really clear to me through those travels that if we don't progress on one of those areas, we risk just being a total jerk. And so in order to be, to achieve my potential as a human, which is to be a really, you know, at the base layer, I think it's just to be a, a really good energy to be around, you know, to, to the point where people can tell, children can tell, dogs can tell. I mean, there's like, there's a, there's a way that you're around someone you're like, if you're tuned in, you're like, oh, this something feels weird or oh, like this. Or you can feel like, feel the relaxation in your body being around someone who's nice to be around. And I've had that experience so many times, both ways in my travels, that I wanted to be like a person that was just a nice, 
thing to be around. Well, I have that experience with you, and it's hard to convey that to the audience in a 45-minute or hour clip, but I definitely think you bring that to your relationships here, and I think you're known in this community for that. I've had an experience like that, which was startling. Maybe the people listening won't find it this way, but I was teaching in Ojai, California, and one night late, we decided to go out to get something to eat at some fast chain restaurant. We sat down, and it was my wife, Diana, um, and a couple that we hung out with a lot. And we didn't really have a lot to say to each other at that point. Um, the relationship wasn't great, but it was a relationship of convenience. I'm not talking about my wife, but I'm talking about <laughs> this other couple. And we're sitting there in this plastic restaurant, having sort of a plastic conversation or no conversation. And in walked a bunch of people who were followers of Krishnamurti. Which was it was Ojai was a center That's in those right. days yeah. for Krishnamurti. I didn't know they were followers of Krishnamurti until later, and they sat down at our table, kind of like your bus experience. <laughs> except I think they were invited by one of by Kirk, who I was with, and because uh, he knew them, he had lived in the community longer than I had. He'd gone to school in Ojai, and they sat down, and all of a sudden the energy completely changed, and it became a really interesting evening and everybody seemed to get calm and become more capable at that moment of experiencing these three levels that you talked about, which go from individual development to worrying about other people to thinking about what's going on in the planet or the universe and how you're impacting that. And without being overly dramatic, I felt like that was a rare moment for me that year, and an all too rare moment for me in my life compared probably to you. But I think I would really hope that one of the things that we could convey to people in this podcast is that that opportunity to focus on those things could be available to them, mm. that they could become more aware of their potential in all three domains than they probably are. It starts from my point of view with recognizing that they're not there. And in order to do that, it seems to me they need to have an experience like the one I had in that restaurant or like the many, many experiences that you had over those 12 years. How do you think people can have more of those moments where there is that awareness of these, I call them levels, but that may be a bad metaphor, these three different spheres and their potential impact not only on themselves, but others. So there's a number of techniques that I've used. I didn't know them in advance, but I stumbled into, and then often I'll, like, I remember them. So I'll tell people about them. So the first, and now there's this big resurgence in it. And so it's maybe more available now than it was before is a really intentional psychedelic experience. Like that, I like the type that Michael Pollan writes yeah, about in his book. Exactly. That's partly the popularization. And he, Michael Pollan, just take a moment. He just blew that stuff up in a way that is amazing. It's like it was really something that like you'd kind of talk about in hushed tones before. Like, oh yeah, I went on this trip and it was really amazing. It changed my life. And then I did it with all this intention, and then I reflected on it because there's in the culture because of like our hangover from the seventies. It's really just associated with it's either bad or it's like party or these people have these bad trips, but to do it with like so much care and intention was really 
rare. And, he, and but then there's all this research that was being done about it. And, he's, you know, for people with anxiety and depression and PTSD and this and that. And he just like, he just made that so public. Like he had with food and, and yeah, and food ingredients. Yeah. So I just want to, I'm just super grateful because now so many more people are open to that because of his, his book. I think that's absolutely true. And it's almost a shame that it takes someone like Michael Pollan to do that in the way I think that Peter Singer has done that with The Life You Can Save and getting people to realize that there's a way of giving money uh, that can have a tremendous impact, even save lives. Let's get into that later. But I think we live in a culture, it's almost like a celebrity culture, where people can have an outsized influence on other people. Peter's doing that in philanthropy, but um, Michael Pollan did that in the kind of experience you're talking about. Um, I had those experiences with people when I was in university. I used to go up to Harvard where Diana, my wife, was a student, and there was a core of people all very successful, editor of the Harvard Crimson and all these really successful people that were doing 50 acid trips a year and getting good grades and doing all these things. So my, it's it's not foreign to me to see this in a different light. So when I read Michael Pollan, it was like, oh yeah, even though this hasn't been part of my own personal experience. But go ahead. So yeah, that's one. Way. That's one, and, and just one one part of that. And there's many parts of that we can get into. But just in terms of our perceptions of the world around us, the first time I, I had experiences like that, I realized how little I had been paying attention my entire life. Like my my observational acuity was so much greater either with sound or you know light you know visual things that it really revealed to me how limited my awareness was so there's a, there's awareness of the self awareness of like our ideas awareness of pain the mind but also awareness of the outside world and it was just like oh there is just so much more available if you pay attention and when i moved back here years ago i would go mushroom hunting with friends and it was just incredible to be walking in the forest and I was, I could just see, I mean, for me, it was just like plant, fern. Pretty primitive categories. Yeah. You know, and like these other people were like, oh, there's just like mushroom there, 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 there. And they, they could just see, and we're looking, we had the same, essentially the same eyes. It's not because they had better vision, but I did. I went in the same environment, but they were just paying so much more attention. And then also had been like trained for certain types of pattern recognition. But that's one part of the psychedelic experience that I think can really contribute to our growth is it just in this awareness. So that's one. Another, um, you know, there's more kind of traditional ways of altering consciousness, like fasting and pilgrimage that I've done that are really powerful. Pilgrimage being? Pilgrimage, pilgrimage for me being walking for a long time without money. And so- Which is common in India? Not so common here. Well, com common in that there's like a whole class yeah, of people. Yeah, I mean, there's 1.2 billion people. That. I don't mean 10%. <laughs> no, but there are, there are, there is a whole class of people like the sadhus. And it was, you know, in kind of more traditional Indian culture, most people who are older had that opportunity to renounce their material life and their possessions, their status in society. Kind of like Gandhi. Or did he not do No. That? Okay, let's no, move away from not like not like that. Um, but just to be like, hey, I'm it's 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 like Indian retirement, right? So like, I'm no longer involved with anything in the business of like money or politics or even co contributing to my community or giving advice. I'm just gonna roll around and walk and wear like very simple clothes 
meditate and just experience what happens on the road. Okay. And so, the, and so if you go to travel in India, you'll like, you should at least see these people, you know. I never got out of Bangalore. If you're, then you're staying in too many luxury hotels. Exactly. Which is exactly what I did to go there. Um, not on vacation, but to try to raise money for uh, high impact charities. But it was, it's funny when you have one lens, that's what you see yeah, is that. For sure. And uh, meeting with billionaires doesn't necessarily get you where you want to go as you're describing. So we're talking about techniques for raising one's awareness and Somebody might think, well, why am I talking to Ankur about this on this podcast? The reason is that I think, first of all, it's incredibly valuable to people to sit with someone like you and experience someone who has cultivated, because it is cultivated, that degree of awareness. And the other is, since my goal is to get people to be more sensitive to the opportunity they have to save children's lives and people's lives in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa who can who are dying of diseases that would be easily treatable in the West. That's my goal, but it seems to me one has to be aware and alert to the opportunity um, and open to changing patterns of philanthropy or donating or even how you live in order to recognize that opportunity. So I think what you're talking about, and I want to get into the other ways of, that you've gotten there, directly relates to what I'm very interested in cultivating for myself, but also for a lot of other people who might grow to see an opportunity that they didn't see before. In the same way you can see mushrooms on a hike, they can see children in Africa dying needlessly um there are many other things that they can see. yeah let's not just that go let's, ahead, let's go into that a little bit because i feel like the the core of all these different techniques and we could talk about them more but ultimately what's most interesting to me is this it's it really is about awareness and this sensitivity but i think part of it is an acknowledgement and a willingness to feel pain the pain that is latent, that is present at every moment, but goes un, unheeded or unexplored. So that could be pain in ourselves. Like so many people like are walking out with grief that they haven't really like, dealt with or whatever. But when you, you bring up this, like people dying needlessly and wherever it is in the world, and it's not just sub-Saharan Africa. Like I went to Seattle over the weekend. It's just like, there's just like a ton of suffering on the streets of Seattle. And it's like, it's gnarly, you know, and it's just, so anyhow, I think we have all of these, I mean, I'm speak for myself. It is so hard for me to tune in to the reality of that pain. And I've built all kinds of emotional and consensual and also just observational blinders to keep me from that reality. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Of course I do. Yeah. I'm very good at it. Yeah. Because I had so much pain when I was growing up which is this isn't the time to get into it and i know that you have just wanted me to confront some of that in our discussions uh in different ways some of which you've already spoken about um but i am very aware of the pain but not nearly as aware as i would be if i didn't have these blinders as you say that i've built up now i'm hypersensitive to this very specific kind of pain that exists for children around the world that could be alleviated. And I think the reason that I can tune into that 
is I see an opportunity to alleviate it. Whereas when I go through Seattle and see all the people living underneath and around the freeway and just all the pain that's on the street there, I'm overwhelmed with how do I do anything about that? So buying bed nets or creating videos to get moms to bring their children to the health center in Africa, oddly enough, seems much easier to me. My own pain, I try to stay away from almost all the time. Although if I hang out with you too much, I might not be able to. Yeah, because I mean, I see it as just so interconnected. And what like the, the sensitivity we're developing in tuning into like our own unexpressed pain and our own needs is the same sensitivity that's going to not allow us to look away from the girl in the pond question, which for me, when I read Peter's book was, I mean, it's just, it's an indictment. We'll play that little piece right now for the listeners so they know exactly what we're referring to. Right. Okay. So I ask you to imagine that one day you're walking across a park. And in this park, there's a pond. You don't expect to see anybody playing in it. But you look at it and you do notice that there is something in the pond splashing around. And when you look closer, you're shocked to see that it's actually a, a very small child. And the child seems to be drowning. You look around and you say, who's looking after this child? You know, where's the parents or babysitter? But there's nobody there. You rush down to the pond. As you do, the thought occurs to you, oh, damn, I've just put on my most expensive shoes because I'm going to this important occasion. Is this child really my responsibility? Once people have agreed that it would be an awful thing to do, to not rescue the child because you didn't want to damage your expensive clothing. Then I point out that we're really all in this situation. Not that we are rescuing children out of ponds, but there are children dying, for example, from malaria. We know that if you distribute bed nets in malaria-prone regions, you can save those lives. for relatively modest amounts of money, we could save the life of a child. So that, that thought experiment I mean, it's just so clear to me when I read that, that that's, I mean, it's, it's just true. That's happening all the time. You can't run away from it. Yeah. Either. No, but, but we are. All right? the time we're running away from it. And it's, it's just, um, it's an indictment, you know? I guess I would ask. I feel it that way. I would ask the listeners to do, I mean, I run away from pain all the time. And I, one of the reasons that the girl in the pond was transformational for me is I really did allow myself to listen to it many, many times. 
and look at the implications for me and Diana in terms of what we were doing with our life and our finances, uh, which was an important piece of it. Um, but I hope that the listeners will take a lot away from you, Anker, and maybe go to your podcast and listen to some of your guests. Um, and we should talk about that just a little bit at the end, or at least let people know where they can find it. But I hope that the listeners, among the sensitivities they develop, will be the ability to sit with that thought experiment and think about what the implications might be for them. It was a pivotal moment in my life, um, more so than reading the whole book. I think reading the book is just the backup. Mm -hmm. um, and then I realized I made a video called You Don't Have to Be Brave to Save Lives. Yeah. And it was easy for me to make that one two-minute video because I realized that I'm not a very brave person, but I still had opportunities to do things that even brave people can't do. I could do them really from the comfort of my home, but I wasn't doing them. So just if people take nothing away from this interview other than their own desire to reflect on their relationship with themselves, their people around them and the world, and think about what they're going to do about that, including being aware of that girl in the pond, 5.3 million of them dying every year of diseases they don't need to be dying of. That number is overwhelming and numbing, and people just go, ah, I can't think about that. Um, but you found that thought experiment very compelling as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I think similar to you, I had, I had moments during that. So here, here's another thing I'm really, I'm really into is ritual. And it's, it's something that, you know, at the, the level of development we're at as a culture, we've, we like got rationality. We were like, we look back at traditional religion and we're like, God, thank God we don't have to deal with that shit anymore. Um, or believing that some sort of like elf in the sky is going to save us or that the wind is controlled by spirits. And like, we see ourselves as really beyond that. And, and we are, and I'm grateful for that. And I feel like we've really lost something, which is this technology of the ritual, which allows people, forces us, like once you make the commitment, you have to go through it. it and it forces you to feel things that you, that are not convenient to feel. Tell I'm just thinking of one ritual that you have impact on this, your smaller community here in Squim, including uh, my son and his family and others. Tell tell me about the bread baking ritual. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's important. Okay. But I want to get back to this. Uh, well, I don't mean yeah. to distract you. Will you at some point get in? Yeah. Because when you're talking about ritual, it's very abstract. And I, yeah. I think your bread baking ritual is something people can go, oh my gosh, he really does that. But yeah, well, I will, but like, okay, let me just get, cause this is, okay. I'll, I'll bring it down to the concrete. Okay. Cause, and I think it's, um, I want to make this as a recommendation okay. that everybody who's listening to this do. So once you read that girl, thought upon, the thought experiment, like go with people that who have also read it, or you've told about it around, I mean, it's a fire. Whew, I can't even, how am I going to rationally justify why I'm choosing fire? Whatever. It's just awesome. Build a fire at night sit around the fire and just take in the, just the horrible reality and pain of all these people dying needlessly every moment, you know, cause for me, the indictment is not like we're guilty cause we're not doing something. I think it's, it's like our heart is not open to the pain and we can't function 
if our heart is always open to the pain. Like there's, it's good that our heart is not open to the pain in a certain way. But if we've lost the ability to open it, then we've really lost something, both for ourselves and for the other humans and for the nature as a whole. So that's the idea. That's the rituals. Get out there and un- until you're like consumed with the with the sadness, like you're angry or you're crying or you actually there's some evidence to yourself that you've let it in. The first time we really met, I think, was around a fire. Yeah, it's kind of it's interesting. Um, I'm just thinking about that. And uh, you had a whole bunch of people over, and I was fortunate enough to come with my son. And uh, and that was that was a ritual. That was a baby shower. Yeah, it was a baby shower. I cannot believe that I went to a baby shower, and that that's not only where I met you, but I also think I had um, some experience with Noah that I might not otherwise have had that night. And this little small community that you all have. It was my introduction in some ways into it around that ritualistic fire for a baby shower. Then the baby shower was for Noah, for Rosalie. Yeah. 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 I've forgotten. And and the whole point is my granddaughter, who's almost four now, this is when Anker and I met when Anna was pregnant with Rosalie or had delivered. I don't even remember, but way back four years ago. Yeah. And it's such a simple, like that event, which I've done a couple of times, but I'm not an expert in it, but I'm sure people are. But you, you just ask a simple question to every person there. Like, I don't know, what is their relationship with their child or with their father? Or what did they learn from being a parent? And it's just, it, does, it doesn't, almost doesn't even matter what the question is. The, the point is like, you get in this place where nobody is talking about the weather. Nobody is talking about some sort of news bit. And it's only something that's transformed their life from their parent or their child. And it's just, you get to a level of reality mm-hmm. with other humans that most of our society is just deathly afraid of. And it was that, what a, I mean, what a beautiful way for us to meet. Yeah, we were like, talking I, about I fell in love with you through that, that moment, right? That was, yeah, I think I was talking a lot about my relationship with Noah. And of course, I had my own peculiar relationship with my parents, which I, which I usually dismiss with just almost like waving my hand and saying, oh, it wasn't very good. Or my mother was in a mental institution yeah. most of the time while I was growing up. And my father was also had bipolar disorder. So I, and that's it. I, that's about the level of the pain that I'm willing to go back into. But my relationship with my children and now my grandchildren is something I'm willing to sit with for a lot longer. And fortunately, I think because of Peter Singer, I've been able to sit with my discomfort about my own behavior throughout my life in terms of what I, what my relationship is with other people and how that's impacted me. So, and you're a part of that now, making, making me confront that. I haven't done all the things you'd like me to do to confront it, but hopefully that remains to uh, be done. Um, Go back to your bread baking ritual, because there is the ritual (laughs) of the fire and getting people together, whether it's at a baby shower or whatever. Um, you get a few people together and you look at our stylized version of the girl on the pond on your computer screen or whatever, and then you just sit there. Maybe it's around a fire or maybe it's just in a room with chairs and you think about it and then you chat about it with other folks. But there are a lot of rituals. And so Ankur, I want to hear about your bread baking ritual because I think it's part of what 
correct me if I'm wrong, has allowed you to carry over these 12 years of experience that you had into SQUIM and your everyday life now is by having a ritual like this. Yeah. Okay. So I can go into it, but it's, it's really funny in that it's, it's been a very emergent, like I had no plan around it. The only reason I started baking bread and I, I, you know, I was, I was a chef for years and I knew how to bake bread in a certain way, but I got married to a French woman and she's used to a very specific and high standard when it comes to bread. So it's, it's gotta be like very crusty, you know, it's like a rustic French bread is what she's looking. It's for. great. I yeah. eat it frequently. Yeah. So I had to learn how to make that. So my, one of my wedding vows was that I would provide her with, with bread. Cause I'm, you know, essentially like extracted her from her home country and brought her to the rural U S where there's not a lot of culture in many ways. Well, it's really <laughs> different. Squim is different than Paris or different than Tunis or any of these places. It's really quite different. Yeah. So I realized that part of my wedding vow, like implementing it was going to be either like driving to Seattle to the French bakery, which is two and a half hours away every day, which is not going to work or learning how to make bread. So I started learning how to make bread. And of course, because I have this whole attachment to local food, because I worked as a farmer for many years and most of my friends here are farmers. I was like, I'm going to make bread using my friend Nash's wheat. He was milling flour at the time. So I'd get the flour, whole wheat flour, which is notoriously difficult to make better, to make good bread with holy flour. But it's like, this is what I'm going to use. It's my constraint. And I'm going to try all these different ways of making bread with this constraint that I'm only going to use Nash's whole wheat flour. And so it took me probably, I mean, she says it was a couple months, but I think it was probably a year before I made a loaf of bread that we were both really proud of. And then in order to do that, and then I switched to using sourdough, but in order to keep sourdough alive, I don't want to get into the whole dynamics of sourdough, but the idea is that there are probably people listening that would love to hear, yeah, but not now. Yeah. You have to like feed it every day. And in order to do that, you have to throw out or use a bunch of sourdough every day. And I had this, you know, I don't like throwing things away. Yeah. You're a zero waste guy. Yeah, exactly. And you got to know, not, not anymore, but you I was wanted to be. Yeah. Well, you would be if you were living without uh, Jasmine and Miriam, probably. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't buy anything that came in plastic and, you know, I, no, I, you would be different, but yeah. you make compromises to have relationships with people and enjoy them and enjoy them. Yeah. 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 So as part of this, I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to keep this sourdough healthy and alive, I need to make bread every day. Otherwise I'm going to be throwing out the sourdough every day. I don't want to do that. So then I started making bread every day. And so then I had four loaves of bread, you know, like a kilo of flowers worth of bread every day. And my wife could only eat one of them. And so I was like, well, I'll just give these to some friends. And then, I mean, it was really, none of this was intentional. And then it came to this thing where that was like, I've done so many different things in my life and I have so many different hobbies and so many different passions, but that is the thing that I'm known for. I'm not known as like the meditator guy or the permaculture guy. I'm known as the bread making guy, which I never would have wanted. I think you're known guessed. for more than that, but I do think that the ritual that you have and how I, I didn't know the whole story behind it of doing it and getting up early in the morning and baking this bread is a discipline that people think of you as having and admire, but they also want to eat the bread. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really crazy to me because since, so I first took LSD in two, the year 2000, the end of the year 2000. And it, I had this experience of like, Oh, I want to live like this forever. And, but I knew enough. I had, I heard enough from um, Nancy Reagan, not Nancy Drew, but Nancy Reagan, that I knew 
that I shouldn't take drugs every day. So I was like, all right, how do I live like I'm on LSD forever? Someone was like, you should try meditation. I did. It was in 2005. I did my first 10 day silent meditation retreat. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is how I live like I'm on LSD forever. I just meditate a lot. And so I've had a daily meditation practice since 2005. And it has been an incredible struggle for me to maintain that. And I've like gone off the wagon for a while and come back. And sometimes I can do two hours a day and sometimes it's just 10 minutes. And it's been like, it's been a real pain in the ass. And when I developed this bread making thing, it's like every day I wake up without an alarm, totally a jump out of bed. And I'm just stoked to make bread. Like the kind of energy and discipline and motivation that I always wished I would have for my meditation practice, but never did. Isn't that crazy? It, no, it's great. Well, yes, maybe it's crazy, but I've gotten into this thing recently. I started, before we started recording today, telling you that I feel like maybe sometimes I'm too involved in the life you can save. I mean, here I am, 73 years old, and I have three grandchildren, soon to have four grandchildren in two different locations that I travel back and forth with Diana to take care of them, which is wonderful. But I find myself thinking about my work at The Life You Can Save all the time. Mm. Even when I'm watching Liverpool play <laughs> football, which is my passion, I'm thinking about how do I get wealthy people, primarily wealthy people, because less wealthy people are extremely generous and they're easier to convince. And they listen to the girl in the pond and they might give $100 a month or something like that, even though that's a lot of money as a percentage. But how do I get wealthy people to understand the amazing opportunity they have? So I've been waking up at five o'clock every morning and I don't bake bread, but I go to my computer, I read my email, and I begin the day of thinking about how do I emotionally connect with people all over the place and get them to in, indulge themselves practically in the opportunity they have to do something that's very easy that they're not really thinking about doing. They can do lots of other things. They can give to the American Red Cross. They can give to the local food bank. They can try to help people in Seattle. But how do I get these people to want to help somebody living in Malawi and cover that country with bed insecticide-treated bed nets or set up um, videos through Development Media International so that people want to make these videos and get moms to have their kids cured easily of diarrhea or malaria? And I'm obsessed with it. And I'm sorry to the audience that I am obsessed with it because I know it comes across that way often in our podcast. But as I'm listening to you today, Ankur, I'm thinking we've been maybe barking up the wrong tree with such a direct approach. Like, here's the suffering, 5.3 million, get out your checkbook and write a check. And if you're very rich, write a very large check. And if you're even inclined, please support the life you can save so we can reach with marketing, many, many more people. But maybe what you're doing or what's coming across in this discussion today of having people start by connecting with themselves and being awake, which is what I tried to get people to do when I ran my anxiety and stress disorders clinic. For those of you that don't know, I was a PhD graduate professor of clinical and social psychology and ran 
and a teaching clinic to treat people with agoraphobia and obsessive compulsive disorder. And the first part of it was getting people to just be okay living with the pain of feeling like they had to do something to get away, to get away from what they were feeling. And, and a lot of it, these disorders are not about anything other than the dysfunction of the avoidance. Anyway, so I'm used to trying to train myself to be more awake, although not as successfully as you, because I haven't in, engaged in those experiences that really promote that. But I do think that having more opportunities like the one that I'm having with you today, where they're talking to people and they're beginning to open up to experiencing their own situation and relationship with their families and their community and ultimately the planet, that that may be the way for people to see that one way they can connect, just one, mm -hmm. is by donating a good chunk of this money to help these kids. That's not the only way. So anyway, I'm thinking that I, I guess I'm having this internal dialogue. Yeah. Charlie, you're too obsessed. You're going after this in the wrong way. You're not connecting with people emotionally. And so my bread baking ritual these days is waking up at five o'clock in the morning and thinking about these questions and then thinking, do I really want to be doing this at 73? And the answer is, yes, I do want to be doing it. I want to be doing it for the rest of my life, but I want to be doing it in a more effective way than I've sometimes done it. Yeah. Okay. So. This, Stop me. This is no, this is great, but I got two things that have kind of awakened in me from that. And so there, one is about purpose, which is the subject of my podcast. So can you say a word about just how people get to your podcast? Right? Now? Yeah. So it's called 10,000 heroes and it's on Spotify and Apple and it has a website. 10,000 heroes. 10,000 heroes. They search 10,000 heroes. Yeah. Should be able to. And then it's written out 10,000 or the number because you never know. Right. Yeah. So 10,000 heroes. But so one is about purpose, and we'll get to that in a second. And the second is, it's called asteya, and it's a Sanskrit word that's one of Gandhi's virtues. So I want to talk about both those things. So on the purpose side, I have a belief. This is a chosen belief, because I think it makes my life better to believe this. So that's why I believe it. I have a, be I have a belief. The most we can contribute to the world around us is by doing the actions that feel like they're most ourselves basically having a good time and that we could channel that we each have like this certain combination of experience and skill and talent and genius and we can challenge channel that towards like the greater good by really like being in it and exploring it and not and not resisting or not not acting from a should but acting from a sense of like creative potential and so like for, for you and it's like you have this passion for the life you could save and for, you know, the effective altruism world. And there's ways that you I wouldn't feel... say the effective altruism. Okay. That's, but that's a whole, other that's stuff. a whole, like, there's a, yeah, we're not getting into there. that. All right. Too. Great. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. So you have this passion for the life you could save. And high impact activities, including parting with your money. Let me put it that way. Okay. And there's different ways that you can engage with that. And I feel like you're going to be most effective when you find a way of engaging with it that is most you and that gives you energy and that uses the skills that you've already developed. So you feel good, not just like about the end, but about the means. So the process is me, that it, it fits with who I am. Yeah. And it, and you feel like 
that may be the missing one of the things that I'm missing right now. Yeah, I think you'll be more effective when you do that. And I think you'll be happier and more energized. And that's going to create a positive feedback loop. So maybe the best thing you get, we've talked about you doing stuff for the life you consider over the years and you've flirted with the idea and we've flirted with you about technology and things. But maybe the best thing you can do is to, uh, I've been thinking about this while I've been talking to you. Maybe you should be my, you not should, but maybe it would be part of what you want to do to help me become more effective by being, I want to say better person, but that's not what you mean, but more aware of myself and more connected from the, in the work that will allow, I'm not being articulate, but will allow me to become more effective in what I do. So yeah. you should, so, you help me help. Yeah. Well, we, we had this idea years ago where we should just go around, like fly around and meet some of these people and have like stimulating, scintillating conversation with them and dine with them. And maybe I'll do a little cooking and that would lead to them giving millions of dollars life, you can say. Right. And so that, that's just one idea. But if you think about that idea and you imagine us doing that, what are the parts of that that you would really enjoy? And what are the parts of that that you would like be bored out of your mind with or you would not enjoy? And then we just use that to iterate to a different idea that has more of the parts that you enjoy and less of the parts that you think suck. And when you get to the idea that's like all like, oh man, this is just the most Charlie thing I could possibly be doing. My hypothesis is that that's going to be the most effective. Well, one of the things that I think, and then we can move on. You've mentioned two things, mm -hmm, yeah. and you want to get to that Sanskrit I word. Um, one of the things I can think of is that if we could start with some sessions in which you and I try to get to those things, not only that I would be excited about, but that you would be excited about. Because one of the concerns I've had about working with you at The Life You Can Save is you have so many things you're doing, from baking bread, to making a living, to being with Jasmine. Jasmine is Anker's daughter, to spending time with Miriam, that I don't know if I really can count on you to be carving out The Life You Can Save, me particularly, as one of those projects. So I'm just putting that out yeah, there. Yeah. Back to you, which is, I think we've been dancing around it for a while. I don't want the viewers to have to spend time with this or the listeners. But anyway, let's get to the Sanskrit word. Yeah. So the other the other side, Asteya. So Gandhiji has, you know, he lived at these ashrams for a lot of his adults. I've been to one of them. The Sabarmati or no the in Ahmedabad. Yeah, Sabarmati. Yeah. Oh, is that the one? Yeah. yeah. Gosh. Even as a kid, I went to India just twice as a kid. Once mm -hmm. when I was eight and once when I was fifteen. Even as a kid, not knowing anything about Gandhi and not really enjoying a trip to India to visit family, that place was a was like an oasis for me. I remember I could just feel there were there were thousands of these these green parakeets in the trees there, like on the riverbank. Anyhow. I get, this is how evolved I am. My biggest problem with being in that state is that they couldn't I couldn't get a beer. <laughs> but you can't. You can go to a five-star hotel. I know. You have yeah. to go to a five-star hotel. But anyway, my point being that I have a ways to go. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in that state that has a ways to go. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's the only the only relic of Gandhiji's presence. Gandhi's from there. Right. Is that prohibition. So is Modi, right? Yeah, right. And, like, all of the amazing ideas Gandhi had about social change and economy and how we should relate to each other, they're not... They're not paying any attention to that stuff, but they have this like prohibition law, which only serves to increase alcohol consumption, of course. Just like, uh, anyhow, 
Astaya. So Gandhi had, you know, 11 ashram observances for people in his ashram to like, these are like kind of the rules of the game. The first is uh, Satya, truth. Second is Ahimsa, love. And the third is Astaya. And it's translated often as non-stealing. But I, I see Astaya as like a mix of, there's like some zero waste. It's basically not using anything that you don't need. And so, so in my mind, for your listener, for the people that want to contribute to this like life you can save movement is like finding your purpose and actually acting in harmony with what it is that brings makes you come alive is a really important part because then once once you have that then it's like you're flowering to a point where you can then like pay attention to what else is going on in the world and maybe like pay attention to what's going on with this bed net situation right but then if you're just like stuck in this cycle of excess consumption or keeping up with the joneses then you're not going to, you're, you're going to relatively deprioritize the amount of, you give to charity. And so the Asteya is this principle of like understanding what it is I need. Having a, you know, the, the sacred artifact of it is the budget, <laughs> you know, having the budget and then anything beyond the budget can then just go. Interesting. If somebody is still listening to this interview or this discussion, it's not really an interview at this point then maybe they are going to be willing to really think about um, what you're talking about because it's pretty inspiring. I could go on forever because I've had 15 questions that I was going to ask you that we haven't gotten to, but maybe it'll be another interview um, or maybe not. Maybe your role at The Life You Can Save will be quite different in terms of um, helping me see a better way forward with the work I'm doing more connected to something about me that will make me more effective and therefore the life you can save more effective. But I do want to end with a question that I'm asking all of my guests, which you've answered indirectly throughout the discussion is, Ankur, what do you think it means to live a moral life? A really easy one I'll end yeah, yeah. with. Yeah, so if I'm, I'm going to take this like, we could just plant a flag for this very, for this just, I mean, I mean, it's a belief. It's just a belief and there's no basis to it, but it's how I'm living my life for these days. Is the notion that our greatest potential is also our highest obligation, which is to live in harmony with our purpose. And the reason I say that is because I think by doing so, we'll be able to create the greatest good and harmony, both internally with, like I've said all along, with the humans and then with the rest of what's going on on the planet. Well, that's, that's really wonderful to hear. I think among many of the answers I've gotten, that, that's really um, another really gem. I wanted to ask you about Mike, Mike Shore's answer because it really, it, just like what you just said, it, was, it, it really sat me back and I thought it was, it was very compelling. Mike Schur, who people hopefully will listen to the episode with Mike Schur, um, the TV producer of The Good Place and other shows, said that he thought the biggest problem in the world today was individualism. And I'm thinking about that in the context of Gandhi and your answers about finding your own purpose. Um, what do you think about Mike Schur's answer? For me, it's a, it's a little bit incomplete. This distinction that people have between what's the opposite of individualism? 
collectivism, maybe. But I, I should say that he went on to expand that he thinks the other, the big problems in the world, like climate change, uh, nuclear weapons, um, pandemics, yeah. um, inequ- wealth inequality are all related to this superordinate category of individualism. Yeah. So it wasn't like he just left it. In no, 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 that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I guess it, it makes sense to me, but I feel like our way out of that is to, is to understand and balance the role of individualism and collectivism. So it's not just like individuals, the problem It's just like, we're not, we're not using our tools effectively in conjunction with one another. So selfishness is another way. Altruism. These are often kind of seen as opposites or like confronted, but, but really I think we have to use both tools. Like there's like this idea of living in our purpose. It's fundamentally selfish. And that it's in, it's individual and it's based in the needs of the individual, but the whole reason for doing it is to be in harmonious contribution to the group. So, like, I, I see the distinction is somewhat artificial. Uh, and, that makes sense. Yeah. And the reason that I responded to this effect of altruism, kind of in the way that I did, isn't because of Sam Bankman-Fried and all of the publicity that has highlighted problems in the effect of altruist movement. It's because of the word altruism. It's it's just one piece, and I'm agreeing with you, of being human. Yes, we have these instincts to do for others, but they, they also relate, as you would say, I'm using your words now, to our own purpose. And this idea of self sacrifice just doesn't this doesn't sit well with me. Yeah. I don't think self-sacrifice gets us anywhere where we want to be. If somebody is going to give up being on the hedonistic treadmill, which you were you were talking about, more possessions will make me happier. If somebody's going to give that up in favor of something that is more impactful on the world and themselves, they're not going to do it because they're guilty and because they're totally. highly altruistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to give it, they're going to do it because it makes sense to do it. Yeah. And that the hedonic treadmill has not gotten them where they want to go in terms of their own emotional well-being. It hasn't helped their family. Um, there is a certain amount of material comfort that is tremendous value. But beyond that, which is not that much money, beyond that, what is going on with more possessions and one doesn't have to live like Gandhi lived in order to get off the hedonic treadmill. It's been a pleasure to uh, chat with you. I hope uh, that everybody else has enjoyed it as much as I have. Charlie, I just got to say one more thing. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. But you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has this, has this concept that he introduced to me. I don't know if someone else introduced it to him of interbeing. And I feel like it's really the the crux here of like the altruism not being enough. It's really, for me, the action comes from an understanding of our essential interrelatedness that cannot be escaped. And I actually did a solo cast for my podcast about baking bread the other day and going into gratitude of everything that came into that bread. And it involves like, you know, hydroelectric dams that are running the mills and industrial agriculture and the oil and gas economy and like everything is included in making that bread because where the wheat comes from and how the wheat's grown and where the electricity comes from and it's it's all we're just inescapably interrelated 
And I feel like what at the best, what um, the girl in the pond and Peter Singer and that whole movement, it it comes out of that understanding, not out of a I'm a guilty and bad and I'm going to do something for you, which is what I I love that you you brought that in there. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm guilty and bad is not going to get is not going to save the 5.3 million girls in the pond. And I don't think that's how Peter Singer is motivated. Peter Singer is motivated. I don't really know. I know Peter quite well, but I don't really know what his inner motivation is. But I know it philosophically and individually is about well-being and people's well-being. And well-being does not end with self-sacrifice. It doesn't even begin with self-sacrifice. So let's leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Musings About Ourselves and Other Strangers. Subscribe and join us. Our guests have varied experiences, different points of view, and interesting ideas about what it means to live a well-balanced moral life. We hope you'll share this podcast with those close to you. We'd also like to invite you to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're interested in learning more about the life you can save and the charities we benefit, visit thelifeyoucansave.org slash musings.